Uh, we're going to continue on in the sermon series here in the book of John. Like I said, we're going to be wrapping it up, um, ending this series today. Now next week, just a little plug for what we're going to be doing next. Um, you may have noticed, I don't know if it's possible to not know that this is happening right now, but we are actually uh, having an election in about a month. And if you somehow have avoided getting uh, crazy amounts of mail or texts to you constantly about this, which is very impressive, um, just to let you know that that election is coming up. Um, I, for some reason, everyone thinks my name is Matthew. So I get texts from campaigns and as well as PAC saying, hey, Matthew, make sure you get out and vote for this candidate. And I do not understand why everyone thinks my name is Matthew. Um, but I don't know. I guess it's good that they don't have my actual information. Maybe I should be happy about that. Um, but yes, so what we want to do is we actually want to spend some time talking about what it looks like for us as Christians to engage politics well, especially in this very toxic uh, political environment in which we find ourselves. Now, don't worry, we will, we will never ever tell you who to vote for or which party is like the right party. In fact, if anything, I want to dislodge those, those notions from our minds in the sermon series. All right, so, so we just really want to shepherd and kind of form your thinking well as you go out and make the decision who you want to vote for uh, in this election and try to engage well in this uh, crazy, crazy time that we're living in, in a Christian way, which we think is for the good of all society. That's what we'll be talking about in that series, and that'll be four, four weeks kind of leading us right up to the election, all right? But like I said, we are ending John today, and today's kind of like a little epilogue to the book. Um, last week, John, he kind of summarizes the, the purpose of the book in verses 31, or 30 and 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now today is kind of like a little epilogue to, to the rest of the book. Uh, and if you're not aware, an epilogue is kind of like something that gets put in a lot, a lot of books a lot of times to kind of cl bring closure to the work. A lot of times it's a little story that kind of wraps up uh, or tells you what's happening next. Or maybe, you know, kind of continuing on in the theme of, of Endgame, which is what we're calling this series, and tying it back to Marvel movies, you could think of it as like an end credit scene or something like that in the book of John. Um, and in those end credit scenes, a lot of times you'll find them setting up future movies in the, in the Marvel Universe, and you could think of it today, too, as well as kind of setting up the future of the church as Jesus uh, settles in on Peter, who is one of the key leaders in the early church, kind of sets up what, what comes to the very next book, if you're paging through your Bible after John, is the book of Acts, and you could think of this as sort of an end credit scene, setting up what's going to be happening as the story of the gospel spreading through the world, through the church, uh, is picked up in the book of Acts. So we're going to talk about how John sets that up today um, as we wrap up the series. So let's, let's jump right into it. John 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Now some time has passed after Jesus appeared to them back in the last chapter. We know that had some time had to at least have passed because Galilee is not near Jerusalem. It's actually several days trip um, up in the northern part of the region. So this is taking place at least a few days later, maybe, maybe a few weeks or, or even a month or so uh, afterwards. And the disciples are up there as well. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. 
When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. So Jesus shows up. He decides, these guys have been working hard. Maybe I'll cook them some breakfast. And he kind of surprises them with a really nice uh, meal of, of bread and tells them, all these fish that you just caught, why don't you bring them over? Let's cook them up. Let's have a good time. And Peter is just jacked about it. We find out he just—he can't even wait. He jumps in the water. He takes off his clothes, apparently, so he can swim in really easily to get to Jesus. And, um, and he's, he's excited to have this meal with him. And so, really, the epilogue is all about Peter. We, we just read this. You're kind of aware of it. The, the epilogue wants to tell us about the sort of reinstatement of Peter. So we're going to focus on what happens between Jesus and Peter in this passage here and what it teaches us about what it, what it looks like to respond to Jesus in the gospel. Now, because this is about Peter, I want to talk about him a little bit. Um, Peter is one of the most important figures in the early church's history, and, and, and maybe you know that, but it, if you grew up Catholic, you're especially aware of sort of the role that Peter has, his kind of primacy. Um, uh, Catholics view Peter as the first pope, actually, the, the first person to fill this sort of seat of, of authority over all the church. Now, Protestants, we usually don't go that far. We say maybe it, it, Peter, ha- Peter did have a very important role in the early church, but it's stretching it a little bit to say that, that, there, that there's this Peter type who has to f- fill the seat of authority over the whole church um, today, but, but it does seem like Peter had this sort of de facto role as a, if not the key leader in the early church. And he leads the Jerusalem church, we find out, with John and James. And really, without, without Peter, we might not be sitting here today. So this is an important story in our kind of family history or our history of us as an organization, as the church. This is, this is an important story to sort of talk about what it looked like for, for Peter to get to this place of importance. Now, an important reason that, that Peter's worth knowing is his story is kind of a model for all Christians. And that's why I think we would want him as an important sort of leader or, 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 or uh, figure in the early church for us to sort of follow and emulate and find sort of peace and comfort in what it looks like for him as he's restored uh, to Jesus. Because he needs restoration at this point. If you remember what's happened with, with Peter so far, um, on the one hand, he's a really He's, he's a virtuous, he's a good, good guy. He's someone we look up to and we got to emulate. He, he's a memorable, he's kind of a key cog in Jesus' team, his entourage in the book. He's sort, of, he's sort of headstrong sometimes. He doesn't really have much of a filter. Um, he's, he's that guy that would, would be deleting posts on Instagram all the time or, or Twitter because he kind of sends them off in, in a fury and he's like, ah, I probably shouldn't have said that that strongly. But you know, he, he's that guy, right? He, he's always saying whatever comes to his mind, first of all, to Jesus. And in his shining moment, this isn't actually in the book of John, it's, it's in the other Gospels, but he's the first to confess Jesus as Messiah. And he gets this nickname from Jesus. Jesus calls him Petros, which means rocky. It's like, dude, you are, what you just said, this is the confession that the whole church is going to be built on, that I am the Messiah, I am the Lord. And so Peter, as the first one to confess this, gets this, this nickname and this sort of important, uh, important um, a role ascribed to him as the one who all people will emulate um, as the church is built up on people making the same confession that Peter does. 
But on the other hand, Peter's had some pretty low lows, too. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. He cuts a guy's ear off and he gets chastised by Jesus in front of all, all these soldiers who have come to just take him in. And kind of the lowest point he gets to is he denies Jesus three times while Jesus is on trial and about to go to the cross. And so, if, if you're Peter, this is, this is the last thing you did before Jesus died. So imagine the sort of agony that Peter's in as Jesus, as he sees Jesus up on that cross and as Jesus goes into that tomb for three whole days, Peter is thinking, my best friend, the, the leader of this movement, I was so excited at what God was doing, is laying dead and the last thing I did was disown him to all these people who, who, who the, the least I could have done was, was stand firm for him in a moment where, where everyone else had turned on him. And even me, who, the one who was one of the closest people to him, the one who was the first to make this confession, even I couldn't, couldn't stay faithful in that moment. And, and, and that would be like, you would be afraid, that would be your lasting legacy. And so you'd have this sort of festering guilt sort of bubbling up within you that like, this is the last thing I did for Jesus. That I, I, had, I had loved Jesus, but when the world was stacked against him, I chickened out. So imagine... That's how Peter feels. And then he finds out Jesus has been raised again. And I imagine he's probably feeling a couple of emotions in that moment. The first is probably excitement, right? That Jesus has come back to life and that maybe there's a chance for some reconciliation. But then also the, the shame probably comes flooding back as well right after that as he starts to think about the fact that uh, what happens if Jesus finds out that I denied him? I should probably tell him, but what's he going to say when he finds out this is the last thing I did? I mean, you're probably very nervous about that. And so there has to be some sort of repentance or reconciliation that's going to take place between Jesus and Peter. There just has to be. Now, we don't know for sure if Jesus and Peter had talked before this story and they'd, they'd actually hashed it out and that what we're finding here is, is sort of the, the second stage of that reconciliation or if it is the first time that they've seen each other. We, we, we don't know if Peter sort of jumping out of the boat to run after Jesus is like, woohoo, we're, we're best friends again, Jesus, let's hang out. Or if it's like, okay, I am making sure that we have this conversation right now. I'm making sure that like, I find out for sure if we are restored and we are reconciled together. Right? Either way, what happens in this story is, like a, is a public restoration. So, so Peter and Jesus are restored to one another so all the other disciples can see it. So Jesus clearly does this in front of everybody else so that they can see what takes place too. And so in verse 15... Um, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. And, and what Jesus is asking him here is, do you love me more than these other disciples here love me? Does your love sort of surpass everyone else's? Because you've said this kind of stuff in the past, Peter, right? This is what you've proclaimed, that you would go further than anybody else in, in showing your love for me. Is that still true, he's asking Peter. And Peter says, you know it is, Lord, you know it is. And so, so, so Jesus continues, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? So he asks them a second time. And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
So the reason that Jesus asks this question of Peter three different times is because Peter denied Jesus three different times. And so what, what he's doing is he's giving Peter a chance for each of those three times that he disowned Jesus to now affirm his love for him. And in all three forms of the question, Jesus tells him, okay, this is what it's going to look like. If you have turned, if you have turned from the course of disowning me like you did before and have turned back towards me in love, then you're going to respond in a certain way. You're going to respond with a certain action. And this action is going to show your love for me. And that action is to, to love and to care for the ones that I have just bought with my blood. Okay? And that's the big takeaway, I think, for, for us as we read this story, is that Jesus wants to be reconciled uh, to all of us. And he doesn't want there to be a barrier because he bought us all with his own blood. And as we show him that love in our reconciliation, it looks like caring for the ones that Jesus bought with, with his blood. And so this is our first point of application today. Loving Jesus' sheep is a way to love Jesus himself no matter how messed up they might be. I know for me, in sort of my uh, growth as a, as a pastor, as someone who's in ministry, who, who, who has the job of, of, of specifically caring for, for, for these people that Jesus has, um, has died for, one of, the, one of the, the, the big things for me was the realization of how important this thing is that Jesus is asking Peter. I remember I was reading a book by, by an old, old guy named John Chrysostom. He lived in like the 300s, 400s, and uh, and, and he writes this book called On the Priesthood. And he says, The master asked the disciple if he loved him not to learn the truth. Why should he who lives in all men's hearts? But to teach us how much he cares for the supervision of these flocks. Once this is evident, it will be equally obvious that a great indescribable reward will be in store for the man who works hard at the tasks which Christ values so highly. What gift then will he give as a reward to those who shepherd his flock, which he purposed not for, the, not for money or any such thing, Okay, and this is the key part. But his own death when he gave his blood for his flock's ransom. This was huge for me because it kind of it, it, it forced me to remember that whenever I look at anyone else who's a part of the church, I'm looking at someone that Jesus said, I'm dying for that person. That's how much I value them. That's how much I love them. I was, I was willing to shed my blood on behalf of that person. And when you sort of take that in, you can't, it can't help but transform your view of other Christians, right? You, you can't help but, but think uh, about a certain level of, of dignity and value that we should give to all other people in the church because of what Jesus has done for them, right? And, and that's something that I think that is, that is true of all of us, not just Peter, not just me and Julie, not just other pastors, but every single one of us, to view each other with a sort of dignity that can only be given because Jesus was willing to give his own life for the other people in this room, for the people who are watching right now at home, for people who are gathered in churches all across the world right now. Jesus died for those people, and that gives them a crazy high amount of value. But we're not always very good at living that out, are we? If we're honest, we often are embarrassed by fellow Christians, right? We often find other Christians kind of maybe annoying or like we can look at them and say things like, well, uh, you know, we're the good Christians. Those Christians over there are kind of weird and we kind of don't want to have anything to do with them, right? Or, or, or that one friend you have uh, on, on social media or something who is always posting embarrassing stuff about Christianity and you're just like, 
yeah, you know what? I, I'm going to tell all my other friends that I don't really, I don't really care about them. I don't really like, I don't really see them as as, as Christian in the same way me and my my other friends are, right? Or, or the Christians on the news, right? The worst Christians are always on the news. Like seriously, can you know why? Why is this always the case? But the, it, you know, it, it makes it you feel like well, you know, like I, I got to make sure I distance myself from the Christians who give us a bad name when they're on TV or when, when other non-Christian friends of mine see them because I don't want uh, them to think we're embarrassing too, right? And, and, and we, we've all thrown Christians under the bus. We've all viewed them by some other standard than the fact that Jesus' blood has been shed for them, all right? And so, so what that means is that no matter how messed up other Christians can be, and let's be honest, Christians can be some of the most messed up people, right? That's kind of the point of the gospel, right? Is that we're saying, we are super messed up and we need a savior, okay? If you think about it, that's like the whole point of Christianity. So it shouldn't surprise us that there are some really messed up Christians out there, right? That's kind of the point. Um, but, but that doesn't mean we should stop loving them and viewing them as people who have been bought by Jesus' blood or by putting, defining them by some other standard other than the one that Christ calls us to view them by. Okay? And, and thank goodness we aren't defined uh, by our flaws, but rather we're defined by Jesus. Because if we applied the same standard to ourselves, we'd probably f- fall pretty short too. I'm sure at some point or another, a lot of people who are watching or, or listening to this right now have been maybe thought of as a weird Christian. Okay? So if we, are, you know, <laughs> if we were judged by our own standard, we would often fall short of that. We have to follow Peter as he follows Jesus and give great dignity and love to the ones that Jesus has bought with his blood. Now, we also have to follow Peter by turning and repenting. And that's our second point of application today, is that repentance is a necessary rhythm of the Christian life. Now, Peter is sort of turning from the course that he'd been going on earlier when he had disowned Jesus. And that's actually what repent means. Literally, it means just just kind of turning from the course that you had been on to go back the opposite direction, okay? Changing from from one way to now follow Jesus. And, And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's a key to salvation is repentance. Martin Luther says that all of Christian life is one of repentance. And I really think we should take that seriously, Right? Like, I, I think, think about treading water. Uh, you know, you learn to tread water when you're doing swimming lessons when you're growing up. And the whole point is if you quit sort of, uh, fl- you know, I don't even know what you call it. You look like you're flying, trying to fly or something like that when you're treading water. But as soon as you stop doing this with your hands or kind of kicking your feet, you start to sink, right? So you have to constantly be doing this or else you're going to start to sink. And if you don't do something, you're going to drown, right? That's how, that's how treading water works. I think repentance is kind of like that as well. The minute we as Christians stop repenting, I think we start to get in trouble. The minute we start to think we don't need to repent anymore, that we have kind of graduated to a place where we don't do anything wrong anymore and the only people who are out there doing bad stuff are all the other people out there, whether they're Christians or not Christians, we start to get in trouble then. All of Christian life is supposed to be about self-reflection and asking ourselves, where am I falling short? Where do I need to turn here? Because our hearts are deceptive and are always going to lead us in a direction that says, oh, oh, you're just fine. Don't worry about it. Everything is, all, is okay. You should continue on the course you're taking. Okay? And that, if we're honest, that's, that's the course that we feel pulled to often, is, is instead of ru- running to repentance, running to Jesus, we want to uh, we want to run away from it. We, we want to run towards our sin. 
Now, a good example of this is, is from a song um, called uh, Apologize by a guy named Grandson. I don't know why in the world he calls himself Grandson, um, but he, he is, so whatever. Um, but I, I like to listen to him sometimes when I work out. He's got some good music for that. But um, I, there's once, this one song, Apologize, I've heard of from him a lot of time. I listen to it a lot as I'm working out. And I was reflecting on the lyrics, just sort, of, just sort of what he says about how he views his past mistakes. And I just want to read, read a, a couple of lines from this song because I think it sums up the sentiment that a lot of people have when it comes to how we view our mistakes or our sins or the things we've done wrong. So here's what he says. Imperfect, I'm imperfect. No roadmap getting lost on purpose. Phone no service, but it's clear out here. I'm living with nothing to fear out here. There's lessons you learn, bridges you burn, all for the cost of a dollar to earn. And they say they love me at dusk, but at dawn I pack up my things and I'm gone. And I don't care where I'm going to go, but I don't care. I, sorry, I don't know where I'm going to go, but I don't care. I'm on the road. Never been a perfect soul, but I will not apologize. I've been a lot of places in this life, and I did a lot of wrong I can't make right. Never been a perfect soul, but I will not apologize. Said I will not apologize. So in the song, he's willing to admit his mistakes. He's willing to say up front, hey, I'm imperfect. I am messed up, and here's some examples of it. I've burned bridges. I've had one-night stands, or I've I've left before the other person woke up in the morning even. Um, I've I've groveled to the record label. I I, I admit that I, I care about money way too much, but emphatically, I want you to know that I won't take responsibility for those things. I will not apologize for any of those things. I am just going to turn and keep going. All right? I don't, I don't know where I'm going. I would rather be free from sort of obligation to other people by admitting I was wrong. Instead, I'm going to double down and I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to put myself in any sort of place of, 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 of subservitude is what he must think it is to these other people by apologizing or repenting. And so instead of turning from his sin, he runs towards it. All right? Now, I think we all have this sort of gravity within us that, 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 that pulls us away from repentance unless we are willing to sort of fight against it, to jump against it in repentance, to grasping a hold of, of the life that is offered in Jesus when we, when we repent. And I really think, like, if, if people were more willing to repent, like, we all want peace, we all want justice today, but no one wants to admit that they're a part of the problem. No one wants to be the first to say, hey, I've contributed to this. Here's what I've done wrong. Here's how I've, you know, helped start this conflict. Everyone wants to point out the evil in other people, and no one wants to point out the evil in themselves, which is what repentance is. But you can't have peace, you can't have justice, you can't have unity without a willingness to repent and admit you're wrong. All right? And, and this is a hallmark of Christianity, you guys. Christianity in action carries the power of Christ's forgiveness for us when we're willing to repent. Now, now recently, I was at uh, an event a couple of Friday nights ago. I was put on here in the Twin Cities, and what happened was a couple of, um, uh, or not a couple, a, 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 a bunch of different church leaders from the Twin Cities all came together. Some of them black, some of them white. And the goal was to kind of say, 
in this moment of, of racial disunity, of, of injustice in the world, we are going to bring together different clergy from different churches that sometimes are not on the same page, that sometimes are just separated out because of the way that we separate ourselves by race in this society. Um, we're going to come together in sort of unity and solidarity, and the white clergy can kind of say, we have got your back, you guys. We are with you in the midst of all of this struggle in the world. Now, one of the things we had to do at this event, though, in order to really make that unity possible was to acknowledge, though, hey, there's a reason that we're not always in solidarity with one another. There has been hurt, there has been pain, there has been sin in the history of the church between white and black leaders, okay? This is just a fact, a fact of, the, of the matter, and, and in order for us to move forward in solidarity, we have to admit to that, and we have to understand that this is going to plague us if we don't call it out and say we're turning from it, okay? And so there was actually a lot of reflection on repentance in order to have reconciliation, and a guy by the name of Jim Olson, he's the director of what's called the Pilgrim Center for Reconciliation. He's a white pastor. Um, his church meets in St. Paul. Um, he, but he, he leads this Pilgrim Center for Reconciliation as well. He led us on a reflection on the need for repentance. Now, the Pilgrim Center for Reconciliation works with, with different groups, many times ethnic groups that are kind of in the middle of, of war-torn countries to sort of find reconciliation between them, between like bl- literal blood feuds between different groups of people this, 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 um, this ministry has worked to bring them together in reconciliation. And he talked a lot about how repentance is key to that reconciliation in his talk. And so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit of, of what he said uh, in this. He says, true repentance opens the door to transformation and reconciliation. You can't have it without repentance. So he says, if that's the case, why don't we do it? He says that he thinks it's because a lot of people don't understand what repentance is. He says, often we think repentance means condemnation, which means shame. It harms our pride. It harms our image of ourselves to admit we've been wrong in some way. So we don't want to do it. We see it as a weakness, not as a strength. Okay? But he says, it's not condemnation. It's actually conviction from the Holy Spirit that brings us to a place of godly remorse. It's not rejection, but it's a recognition of the reality of what's true. We are full of the same sin that we are calling out in others that has caused the conflict. And if we can come to a place of accountability to say, here I am, I'm not hiding anymore, um, it it, it leads us to a a place of, of fruitfulness, of reconciliation. Okay, it's not a punishment that leads to a tearing down. It's actually a discipline from the Lord that corrects us and turns us towards truth and transformation in you. And the only true way to deal with your, your sin or your mistakes is to deal with them in the face of God and in those that you've harmed. That's what we learn here. Otherwise, those sins are just gonna, they're gonna come back and destroy you. No matter how hard you're trying to run for them, no matter how hard you're trying to sweep them under the rug or push them down, they will come back to get you. And Christians, this is a fundamental belief of Christianity, is that everyone is infected by sin. And so when we refuse to repent, we're rejecting the truth of the fact that we are all a part of the problem. Whatever the problem in, in the world is that we're, we're pointing out right now, we're a part of it. And so we settle into our little corners, ready to fight, blind that we are part of the problem, um, when really so many fights, so many conflicts in the world could be avoided uh, with, with, with whether it's your spouse or friends of yours or it's at a big picture level if both sides started out by, with this posture of repentance and turning to God to admit where we've been wrong. 
That, that would go a long way to healing a lot of divisions in the world. Okay? But instead, everyone wants to take the route in that song I was just talking about. Okay? No one wants to repent. Everyone wants to run away from it. Everyone thinks they're right and everybody else is wrong. And so, when we're willing to repent, and this is our last, our last point of application here, is, is real fruit will grow from genuine repentance and reconciliation. So we have to be willing to repent if we want to see um, reconciliation in the world. The type of reconciliation that's taking place between uh, Peter and Jesus in this passage. Uh, repentance opens the door. We have to commit to walk through that door to see the fruit. But the fruit of repentance is, and reconciliation, it is very, very, very Sweet fruit, some of the best fruit out there. And actually, from this, returning to the Pilgrim Center for Reconciliation, on their website, they, they have some stories about what's happened as they've sort of gone into these places and worked at reconciliation through repentance. And actually, sort of, the, 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 the founding story I found particularly um, poignant, and I wanted to share that with you today. This, this is the story of Arthur and Molly Rauner. They were actually the, um, the founders of this Pilgrim Center for Reconciliation. And in 1994, they were invited to Rwanda by World Vision. Now, if, if this was, for a lot of us in this room, including me, um, we were very young when this took place, so, so maybe you've not heard of it, but it was a very big uh, national story in the 90s, and you had these two groups of people, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda, and they were, uh, there was this genocide that had been taking place between the two groups, and it was, it was world news, and, and, and a lot of people had been going in, a lot of NGOs had been going in, trying to build schools, clinics, trying to help this nation heal from all of it. But without reconciliation, they would just continue to fight over everything that, are, that has been brought in to sort of help fix the problem. And so, and so you have Arthur and Molly, and they're trying to say, how can we, especially with, with, with what we have in Christianity, come in and offer something that is going to offer true healing, that won't just continue the conflict now over all these different things that have been brought in to supposedly try to help fix the problem. And so the night before they were bringing some members from these two groups together, the Hutus and the Tutsis, to talk about reconciliation, Molly is praying and she's just like, what can I do? I don't know, how to, I don't know what to do. How, how are we going to heal these divisions, Lord? She's just crying out to God, praying. And, and she says that over and over again, she was told by Jesus that she needed to start out by confessing the ways that people in the West had actually helped create some of the conditions for this genocide. Uh, and I don't need to get in the history of it, but there are things that had happened in the history of Rwanda that had been kind of imposed on them by people from the West that kind of helped lead to the, the, the present-day genocide that had been taking place. And so Jesus was like, you need to go in and start by just repenting of what you've added or, or what, what, what some people like you have added to this. And so um, they go to this reconciliation retreat uh, the next day, and, um, and she did it. She started out by repenting, and it led to a flood of confession and repentance. Literally, I guess, they, they had to bring towels in to clean up all the tears in the room. That's what it said on the website. Which is, it was this incredibly uh, healing event, uh, this incredibly um, a reconciling event, and it all started with everybody being willing to admit that they had sinned, that they had added to this, repenting before Jesus and then coming together in love after they had dealt with the baggage of all the stuff that they had been bringing to it themselves, being willing to uh, dismiss that, to get rid of it, and to repent and find reconciliation. What they say from the website is that after the genocide, there were plenty of ideas of what reconciliation was. People were pouring in from the West to conduct seminars, workshops, lectures, and teachings on reconciliation. But suddenly, there was another answer. The way into the heart is not through information or explanation. What's needed is a way to experience transformation, and that comes through repentance. 
Now, if we bring it back to the story of Peter and Jesus, we see that there is real uh, fruit that grows from this repentance and reconciliation back to Jesus. We talked about how Peter goes on to be one of the most important figures in the early church. And like I said, if, you just, you know, you're, if you're in John right now in the passage, when you just need to turn your Bible one page over to get to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts talks about all of these things that Peter does as he goes out now, sort of restored back to Jesus as he leads the church and, and it starts to really explode through his ministry. Okay, So Peter's around at these key moments in the book of Acts, removing this barrier between Jews and Gentiles uh, that had existed because of some Jewish laws, at this first church council saying that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, um, in forming this partnership with Paul and sort of uniting the movement that Paul is doing in the Gentile world and forming Christian churches there and saying we are bringing these churches together, Jewish and Gentile, it doesn't matter, we are coming together and it comes through his partnership with the Apostle Paul. Um, He helps give structure to the early church and he gives a model of repentance and humble leadership for subsequent generations of Christian leaders and and Christians to follow after him as we as we look at this story when we repent and we and we reconcile we open the door to change when we run we choose to remain trapped and condemned if Peter had chosen to run to not admit his mistakes to Jesus serious fruit would not have grown let's choose to be people who repent because we care about reconciliation and transformation, and we believe that the gospel has power. I'm going to close this in prayer, uh, and then we will head into a time of worship. Lord, we thank you that you tenderly approach us as Jesus comes to Peter, and you, and you call us to repentance, you call us to reconciliation with you, um, as, as you tenderly allow us to, to, to admit our sin, to confess it in front of you, but do not hold that against us, but instead you take that, you nail it to the cross so that we will not be condemned by it and repentance can lead to true life that is only found in you. Help us to be people of repentance. Help us to not stop uh, repenting, like someone stopping treading water so that we may drown, Lord, but help us to, 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 to continue to be people who repent and continue to find life uh, through that, God. That is our heart's desire uh, today, that we would not be a part of, of conflict where people are, 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 won't admit that they're wrong, Lord, but instead uh, repent before you, and that as we are reconciled to you in that, God, as we admit our sin, we are also reconciled to one another. Help us to experience the fruit of that in our own lives, Lord, no matter how big or how small uh, that repentance uh, may be, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who does restore us. Amen. Our reflection question today is, do you need to be reconciled to a brother or sister uh, in the faith? And if so, does it need to start with some repentance?